Hey everyone, this week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by gtechnology and filmtools.com. G-Technology is a leading brand for professional-grade storage solutions for the media and entertainment industries. Since their inception in 2004, G-Technology has consistently offered reliable, high-performance hard drives. If you're in the market for some new storage, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out the hottest product offerings from G-Technology. And now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Kelly Dixon, ACE. Kelly began her career in the early 90s, assisting on movies like Reservoir Dogs, Leaving Normal, and Goodwill Hunting. She moved to edit TV series like Luck, Shameless, Breaking Bad, The Walking Dead, Halt and Catch Fire, and Better Call Saul, plus TV pilots and the TV movie The Interestings. Kelly recently completed her first big feature film as an editor, The Goldfinch. Did you really do much of a transition from film to digital editing, uh, really kind of as an assistant? When did you start cutting digitally? I feel like my career has always been on the cusp of the changing of the business. I was a production assistant when things were sort of in television going to digital or tape, really, I guess, analog tape, um, but cutting, I guess, on computer. But the film business was still, they were cutting on film and on chems and, you know, with, you know, lots of bins in the hall and, you know, trims hanging down. And so what I realized at that point, and I had a really good, some really good mentors back then who basically told me, you need to know both. One of my first experiences was I was a production assistant on 30-something. I was working on 30-something when Edward Zwick was directing Glory. And so when he brought the film back to Los Angeles, I would ask my boss at 30-something, when I'm done with what I need to do, can I go over across the street to the cutting rooms of Glory? And they were like, yes, as long as you you know, answer our calls and do what we need to do. So I would go over there. And those assistants taught me how to do trims and how to recon and stuff like that. So I was learning the film side, and then I really realized that I needed to learn dailies. In film, dailies is a huge, huge deal. I mean, it's very, very involved, and you have to be very fast, and you have to be very dexterous, and you really need to know what you're doing. So I approached the woman who uh, handled post um, over at, uh, C- at the time, it was called CVS Radford Studios, and her name is Alicia Hirsch, and I went to her and I said, I would like to learn how to do dailies, and she put me in touch with her shipping department, and so I learned from them how to do dailies on film. So I was really kind of going around trying to, you know, learn the film side, and on the TV side, on the digital side, I was already cutting um, on digital stuff. They would give me scenes on 30-something, and I would cut them for the editors. I wasn't cutting for air. I was cutting for practice. And they would, you know, give me um, notes and I would go back and do the notes. And, you know, so that's how I learned both sides. So as an assistant, I was kind of learning how to be, you know, I guess a switch hitter. And you and I talked about three years ago and uh, you said that those 30-something edits 
a lot of those did end up on the air, un unbeknownst to you. <laughs> yeah, I found that out much later. I think maybe about, I don't know, five or six years ago, you know, I found out that they weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> and so I hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble. But, you know, I, and it was very nice to know that they really thought a lot of, you know, what I was actually doing to just said, great, this is great. I'll plop this right in the show. I mean, look, I learned from that long ago because I you know, we'll give scenes to my assistants and, you know, I, you know, I always believe in paying it forward and that's how the work is supposed to go is that, you know, assistants are supposed to learn from editors. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen as much nowadays. It's just the, the business has changed so much, but, you know, my first thing is, look, I have to be responsible for the cut. So I feel like if the, uh, the scene passes muster for me, then, um, yeah, I'll put it in the cut. A lot of assistants nowadays too, when I work with them, they're like, well, if I cut something, will you tell the producers that I did it? And my answer to that is, yeah, if they like it. <laughs> if they like it, I'll tell them that you did it. If they don't like it, I certainly won't throw you under the bus, you know. You know, and again, I'm responsible. So usually if an assistant does something that's good, I'll put it in the show. And if the producers have an issue with it, I will just be like, okay, yeah, let me take a look at that. Let me, let me just go back. And if the assistant is progressed enough, I will um, tell them, hey, you know, here are the notes. You want to do the notes. Sometimes, you know, I'll let them do the notes. Sometimes I'll do the notes. You know. I'm in the position that I'm in because I had a lot of great mentors and a lot of people who who did that kind of thing for me. I mean, my mom was a school teacher on the south side of Chicago. She was a single mom. I used to think that you could only be in the film business if you had parents in the film business. So to, for me to actually be here, you know, is is kind of mind-boggling and baffling. And so I know that it's because, you know, I got out here, people treated me like family, they gave me a lot of second chances, and they helped me out, so I try to do the same thing. Um, you've got a ton of TV series as an editor, uh, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, Halt and Catch Fire, Walking Dead, but this is your first job as an editor for a feature, correct? Is there... Are there things that you can that you've been able to bring forward, just the basic storytelling and editing stuff, and then what's different from TV to to cutting a feature? The way I approach the material is the exact same way. I mean, we get the scenes in on a daily basis. It's scene by scene. Um, I will say, as you know, on the whole, I read the script and I try to understand it and understand it, the, the narrative. Hopefully I like it and that it speaks to me. I'm really picky about scripts, so I will say that I've gotten a lot of scripts where I just said, no, no, I'm not interested in doing that. And luckily I've been able to turn work down. It's not that I'm turning a whole lot of work down, but it's really important to me. The story is really important. But I read the script and I see what speaks to me and I try and picture it in my head. And then once the dailies start coming in, I look at what the director gave me and, you know, maybe they gave me exactly what I saw in my head. Maybe they gave me more. Maybe they gave me less. But at that point, it's like, look, this is what I have. So then I try and take what I have and mold it into something that still speaks to my heart like a, the original material did. And so that's how I approach all of it. When I started cutting The Goldfinch, I didn't approach the material any differently. I spent the year in New York, so I was away from home. It was kind of like camp or, you know, boarding school or something. Um, I was working away from home, and I was there for an entire year. And, you know, I knew very few people, although I did, you know, make some friends, and I had a couple of friends. I used to think that I would just hate working on something for so long, like, you know, it's like I always was going, 
what on earth do they do on a feature for all this time? You know, I had such a really great experience working with my director, especially. I remember sitting in my apartment last year around October and I was like, boy, this thing could have gone really, really badly. This thing really, really well because I had a great experience with the people that I was working with. But boy, if you're working with people that, you know, it's not a good experience, man, that could go very badly. But I was working um, with John Crowley, the director, and I absolutely loved working with him. A lot of our days would consist of a lot of conversation. You know, I mean, we talk about this book is a long, long, full of metaphor book. You know, it is very, 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 very thick on on metaphor, deep metaphor, a lot of conceptual stuff. So a lot of our talk was about the metaphor and about, you know, what was actually happening in the film at that point and what we wanted to be happening at that point and was it happening at that point, things like that. John Crowley, director and writer Peter Strawn, did a lot of uh, restructuring of the story from the book. And we did a lot of restructuring from the script to the actual film. And that takes a lot of time and mind bandwidth. And it's a 770-page book, I think 150-page script, 150, 160-page script. Then, you know, that puts it at 150 minutes. And definitely the editor's cut was way longer than that. And so, you know, it was one of those things where we were having to lose darlings and try not to lose darlings. What's another way of getting this information? You know, what's another way of doing that? So I spent a good bit of time with all of my, you know, secrets and tricks and talent trying to mold this thing, you know, and get every single last bit of what they set out to get on the screen and not let it just get cut away. I just pitched a lot of things and, you know, John would pitch and we'd try things and it was a really fun experience. And I think a lot of it was because, you know, he and I just worked together so well. And I just kind of think, well, you know, if they're all like that, this is great. Um, but I ha- I know from other friends of mine that they're not all like that. And so I thought, well, this could have gone really badly and it would have been just miserable. Talk to me about the, the uh, how you collaborated and how much of that was done through your editing skills and how much of it was done through your storytelling, communication, talking, thinking skills. All during the shoot, um, John would come in on the weekends and watch the week's work. Um, It was usually like maybe two or three hours, three or four hours on a Sunday. And we'd talk about it. And, and, you know, he was really respectful because he wouldn't really give me a whole lot of notes. He understood that that wasn't really fair and that I had enough to do with the next week's work. But, you know, he would kind of like say, you know, what he liked and what he was sort of going for. And I was really happy that he was very happy with the cuts the whole way. There, There wasn't a whole lot of well, you know, you missed the point here. You want, I wanted to do this. Now there, it was really like, oh yeah, no, I, I really like that. And I think that he liked that I would take a few liberties here and there, you know, like, uh, maybe he had a scene where two people were sitting at a table and they were just talking back and forth. And then I would really work with the rhythm of the cut. And maybe I would do something a little bit that you wouldn't expect. It wouldn't just be a back and forth, you know, one cut to the other. Maybe I would go wide or something in in an unusual time in it. And so I think that he liked that I was, you know, comfortable enough with the footage and comfortable enough with him 
to do that. And I always knew that, you know, he'll tell me if he doesn't like something and I'll change it. They started shooting, I believe, on January 23rd. And I delivered an editor's cut on May 14th, I think, somewhere around there. And so he started working in mid-May. And the first thing that we did was we presented the editor's cut and he just watched it. And then we just started in and most, I think for the, maybe the next day or definitely that afternoon, all we did was just talk. We had each made notes about what we thought was working, what we didn't think was working. And one of the things that I was a little nervous about was, well, I have some really, really, really big ideas about some things that are not really working, you know, and it was one of those things where I sort of had to feel out, you know, what his thoughts were before I started in, because I knew that we had big structural issues, things that worked really well in the script, but weren't quite working as well you know, once it was done, it was things like this needs to happen 20 minutes before this big, big things like, okay, we need to get Theo, the main character, we need to get him here by this time. We're spending 30 minutes or 40 minutes until we get to a certain point And that needs to move up. I knew all that um, about a week before I presented my editor's cut. So I was just making a lot of notes. And once John came in, he was very amenable to listening to, you know, my thoughts as far as what was happening and stuff. And luckily, I was very worried that we would spend a good bit of time trying to ramrod this structure. And we didn't. And I was really, really excited about that because, you know, I felt like, look, there are some very, very big issues and I think we need to tackle them right away. And so the first probably week or so was spent moving things around and then watching again and seeing, are we liking where, you know, structurally where things are happening? We would spend time talking about basically what was happening at, at a certain point in the film. And, you know, was it enough? Were we connected? You know, how did we feel? A lot of, a lot of it was being connected to our main character. And if we aren't, how do we get there? The movie and the book start in the Amsterdam hotel room where Theo, the main character Theo, is um, reflecting on this tragedy and how it affected. And we're sort of, as an audience, we're sort of brought into the story this way. And for John and I, in the editing room, it was more like, this is the structure that has been determined by John and the writer. I know that they worked very, very closely together. There are various sections of the movie that need to happen before other sections. And it was like, okay, but are we spending too much time in this location? I definitely don't want to think of myself as a TV editor, but I want to think of myself as a storyteller rather. And so television though, because there's such a time issue with TV, I brought all those skills with me. I was like, okay, I think that we should be in this location at this point, or I think this, you know, needs to happen to Theo, you know, at 20 minutes. Right now it's happening at 40 minutes. I think that's too long. How do you feel about us moving this up? And and so what we do is just take big, big chunks and move them around. And of course, that kind of messes with everything that comes later. You know, at one point, the young boy, his glasses are changed in the middle. And, you know, there were a couple of times where I thought, oh, um, let's get that one scene with the kid in his room 
And then we're like, oh, we can't because he's got a different pair of glasses on. So it's like, oh, we can't do that. I really, really, really worked hard in trying to change the structure of the thing to what we wanted, but we had our hands tied in some ways. John would suggest things like, oh, well, you know, maybe we don't need that scene between these two other scenes. And when you pull, you know, something out of the middle and you join the two sides together, it's like, well, how am I going to make that? Wait a minute. How are we going to make that transition? I remember one that was really, really tough. And I, you know, had to kind of throw a, a crazy idea out to him. He basically took out a scene where the two scenes coming together were now going to be in the same location, but a, a time jump. And I was like, okay, well, how do we explain how this just happened? And I sort of came up with a really interesting and brave, I feel like it was brave, pre-lap. Um, and I said, you know, this is kind of nuts, but let me try it. You know, he was always open to trying new things. I just cut a feature that's out right now. And we had the same thing. We pulled 15 scenes out of the movie. And when we pulled some of those scenes out, we had the exact same issues. Like, oh, well, now that these scenes are missing, these two scenes can't go together. And so you either have to move them someplace else or you have to figure out something you can put between them or, as you suggested, you know, a, a creative use of a pre-lap. But I definitely feel like, um, you know, we, ha we introduced one of our main characters 40 minutes into the editor's cut. And I'm like, this has got to be at 20 it can't be uh -huh. this guy can't show up 40 minutes in he's got to be we, we got to somehow lose 20 minutes out of the first 40 lots of discussions about structure it sounds like like you said all, all those places where those things come out makes the joins strange you know, the movie starts out as the book starts out in a Amsterdam hotel room with adult Theo reflecting on, you know, his life and, you know, what has brought him to this place. And that is, you know, exactly the same as the book. But in the book, he jumps back and you meet him as a child and he's living with his mother and he's gotten in trouble at school and his mother is taking him to a uh, meeting, I believe, with the headmaster or something. And they're early, so she wants to show him something at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She shows him, uh, you know, one of her favorite paintings, which is the goldfinch. It's a real painting. The story is a fictional story, but it is a real painting. And uh, they sit there and they look at the painting and they then his mother goes off to see another painting that she wanted to look at. And uh, and then there's an explosion. Peter Strawn, the writer, and John Crowley worked, worked together on the script. And they wanted to adjust the chronology of events in the movie. And so in the movie, we jump to just past the museum like we don't see the museum uh, you know and they've been showing it on the trailers and stuff they've been showing the explosion we definitely don't show that until I think probably two-thirds into the movie <laughs> um, and I know that John uh, was very specific about this he always uh, shows uh, the back of the mom walking away you know, it was a very, very important to him that Theo was always having a hard time seeing his mother again after that. The, the last thing that he remembers is her walking away from him. And it's really devastated him for his entire life. You know, one of the discussions that I had with John, probably towards the middle of the director's cut, John was very, very specific about wanting to 
show the relationship between young Theo and Mrs. Barber, uh, the character that's played by Nicole Kidman. And it's a very, very complex and kind of odd relationship that they have, especially Mrs. Barber has a lot of subtext. And I was, you know, incredibly impressed with Nicole Kidman because, you know, I'd get her dailies and she had so many ways to play the complexity of Mrs. Barber. Even when I read the book, Mrs. Barber is very protective of the way that she appears, the way that, you know, the public knows her, the way that, you know, she's got issues in her family and you know, it's this very, very uh, high class Park Avenue, perfect kind of demeanor. You know, this boy comes to her in an early one morning after this tragic event. And she's like, well, I couldn't really turn him away. You know, I had to take him in. And she doesn't really want this kid there, but what else, you know, what else is going to happen to him? And so I, I think that she doesn't quite know what to do with him. You know, it's like, you know, one of the first things that she says is, are you hungry? And tell us how we can help you. And this is a, you know, a, what, a 13 or 14 year old kid who basically his mother just disappeared. We jump from the Amsterdam hotel room to when the kid is appearing on Mrs. Barber's door. And one of the things that I said to John, I understand that you want to really, really have the audience sink their teeth into the relationship between Theo and Mrs. Barber. You know, Theo is a child. He can't live on his own, but he can certainly take care of himself. You know, so it's kind of an odd situation. And I will, just to deviate a little bit, when I read the script and I had my interview with John to actually get the job, you know, I told him I really can identify with this character a lot because my mother died when I was 14 from a, a brain aneurysm. And it changes your life, you know. I was an only child, just like Theo. I went to live with family. When that happens, um, you become a perpetual visitor. You are not in your own home anymore. For me, and the way I felt that Theo was, is you try and leave as small a footprint as possible. But I don't think it changes until you probably start to make your a home somewhere else you know, some on your own. For me, I think it was probably starting at college. For this kid, he's just kind of like an interloper, you know, and he's had this tragic event happen and they don't really know how to help him deal with it. They try and like involve him in, you know, the family, but not really. Getting back to my discussion with John, I think that there's an issue because what you've done by taking the explosion and the museum section out of the middle is you've set up a mystery for us as an audience that we are sitting here trying to figure out how to solve rather than really kind of connecting with Theo in his relationship with this family that doesn't really want him or know what to do with him. And I think that that was a tough one. And when I brought it up to him, I think he really understood my point. And, you know, we were sort of like, okay, how can we solve that problem? I, you know, and again, just to reiterate really quickly, adult Theo in the hotel room sort of explains to us that his mother died, but 
we don't really know what happened. And immediately we're thrust into this kid. Something's happened. He's dirty. And he shows up at these people's house at like, you know, six o'clock in the morning. As an audience, we're like, well, what happened? What happened? You know, instead of settling into, let's move on from that. It was a tough one. And, and you know, I was like, well, if you're going to set up a mystery in the very beginning, I think that it's a lot to ask, you know, an audience to not want to understand what happened. You know, one of the things that I had to do at one point is that there's a scene where Theo and the little boy that he's friends with, his name is Andy, they're sitting in the dining room and they're doing homework. And Mrs. Barber comes and she hears them in the hallway and she's just, you know, listening to them laughing in the hallway. And there's a scene that came next, and John decided, let's take that scene out, and let's put the next scene, just butt that up. And the next scene was in the same hallway, Mrs. Barber, in totally different clothes, asking Theo, would you like to come to Maine with us? And I was like, how am I going to make this work? (laughs) You know, what am I going to do here to, you know, join these two together? We now have an entirely different subject. Days have passed and and we're in the same location with Mrs. Barber. How am I going to make this work? And then I kind of suggested at one point to John, I said, well, why don't we cut some of this early dialogue in the scene and let's just say, Theo, would you like to come to Maine with us? And we're going to put it on the scene before. I'm just going to put it on Mrs. Barber as she's listening to them laugh in her own voice. It's almost like a thought that she's having, but she's saying it herself in, you know, it's basically a big pre-lap and it worked. (laughs) It was like, and that's, you know, pretty bold. It was not a style of the film, you know, at that point. It it just wasn't. It just was not something that we were doing stylistically. And but I didn't know of any other way to get around it. So I just suggested it and you know, he's like, Yeah, let's try it and we liked it. And I can't remember at what point during the director's cut it happened, but I think it's been there three or four weeks in, you know, it and it'd been that way and it stayed that way. Once you remove something in the middle, you have to join the two sides and you've got to figure out transitions that, you know, didn't exist. I did a lot of that in this. I mean, I pulled out a good hour from the editor's cut. I mean, I couldn't have done this a couple of years ago. I mean, look, I could have cut the movie, but I couldn't have, you know, all the things that I kind of sort of came up with to, to do it and also to kind of fold time in on itself and try and lose things and, you know, stuff like that. I, that, you know, it's funny because people ask, how does your skill level change over the years? And I can't tell you how, but boy, it does just experience. And I mean, I was very lucky with Breaking Bad because I was working with a very confident showrunner, Vince Gilligan, and he was appreciative of any other creativity that came around. And he used to say things like, don't rob me of any riches. And so I got really lucky because I could try creative things, just kind of be brave, and it was a safe room. And not only could I try them, I started to get good at them. You know, so with this, it was like, okay, here's the problem. What can we do to solve it? I sort of feel like those guys on the movie Apollo 13, you know, when they have like all the stuff and they're like, okay, we have to make a filter that's round. We have to make it out of this. I was also really lucky with John. And and I think that he trusted me enough because he had already seen the work 
throughout the months that he was doing the shooting. So he was already confident. I wasn't going off book then. And so now when it came to us joining all the pieces and us really making, you know, something that was, you know, cohesive and we had to really, really change a lot of the structure over the course of the director and producer cut. There were months, months that probably, I don't know, May to about early November you know, that we were working. And like I said, I have changes now. I'm like, there are several scenes that I really, really wish that we could have fit in there. And it was just about time. The movie is, I think, somewhere around 220 or something. And by trying to figure out how the difference of shooting changes the story so much. I have so much respect for the writing and for the writer as well, because I always have this feeling with directors you read this piece of material and it really touched your heart. It touched your heart so much that you spent years to develop and shoot this and so much money. So how in the world can we just throw away the writing that really was the first thing that really touched your heart about this, about this material? Things work on paper because our brains work a different way. You know, our brains are are really, really complex. And going back to the Goldfinch, when I first got the call for the Goldfinch, it was early November, um, and I had made a decision to leave Better Call Saul uh, at the end of season three. I was going to look for a feature. And I had met on maybe, I think, three or four features. And so um, my agent talked to me and he said, well... You know, when we talk to feature um, feature producers and directors about you, people get very excited. And I'm like, okay. And so I told him my, my issues and, you know, I don't want a, you know, crappy movie that I don't like and stuff like that. And the call came for the Goldfinch. And I was just like, you know, I, I was kind of saying to my agent on the phone, I'm like, come on, man, do you really think that I have a chance at this job? Come on. I'm trying to get like, you know, a $5 million, $8 million movie. There's no way they're going to hand me a $45 million movie. It just is not going to happen. And my agent was like, no, I, I actually think that you do have a shot at this. And so I, I got the call on a Friday and they sent me the script and, you know, every script that I've ever gotten, I've probably, you know, gotten sent maybe, I don't know, 20, 30. Um, they always want to, they always say, well, if you connect with the material, we'd like to talk to you ASAP. So, so I knew that I had to read this thing right away. And I, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I had never heard of the book and I am a reader, but I didn't hear the book. And so immediately I looked up on Amazon, what kind of book is this? And it said 771 pages. Then I looked up on Audible. The audiobook was 32 hours and I'm like, okay, I have the week and that's doable. And I started listening to the book on the way home from work that day. And I read the script the next morning after breakfast. And then I kept listening to the book and I listened to the book till, you know, I finished the book, I think early Monday morning and I was ready. And immediately, like I told you before, I, I sort of connected to the aloneness, but it really, to me, was just the feeling of never really having a home again. Um, that's very apparent in the movie and it was very apparent. And that's what I really locked into. And so the script was really illustrative and I felt and could see in my head how this kid sort of navigated the world. And it is an unusual existence. Um, and, you know, one of the things I said to John at one point, I said to him, you know, 
this character uh, as an adult, because it's it's one thing that he experiences, but it, it basically takes over his life as well it should. It takes over his life well into adulthood. I remember um, talking to John at one point, because th- these are the things that we would discuss, you know, we would discuss where are the character's headspace is and all that kind of stuff. And I said to him, um, this, this guy, Theo, he still hasn't really, really moved on. He, you know, he has not like taken his life and, you know, and made a new home for himself. He's still trying to find home because he lost it in such a horribly sad and tragic way. The interview with Crowley, what do you think, there's probably a, a bunch of things with you, I would think, between your skill set and your Emmys and your Ace uh, um, Eddie nominations and your connection personally with a story that's similar to your own and what what do you how did that interview go and and what did, when you walked out do you go did you go oh i got this it was a skype interview which kind of sucked because i had a friend working on the production um she worked for i believe the one of the executive producers sort of a line producer i said come on i i there's no way i don't have a chance at this and she goes no i think you do you'd be surprised you know he's making some unusual choices and i think what she meant was that you know i look this was my first feature and this is a big gigantic one you know this, this is unheard of right i have a really good track record of getting jobs that i interview for but you know, this is a big studio feature, and why on earth would they hire me? But I did tell him about my uh, connection to the character, and I and I talked to him about the script. And, you know, what I always will tell people when they ask me is, like, look, I always want to read any material that's going to help me understand this as as much as possible. So if there is a book, I will read it or I will start reading it or I will get the audiobook. Uh, I did a pilot a couple of years ago for Amazon called The Interestings that was, you know, also a very, very um, well loved book. And, you know, my first thing was, let me, let me get this book, you know, and I remember not be getting through the book on before my interview. My interview was at the time was with Mike Newell. And, um, and I remember not getting through the book, but I had gotten through enough of the character stuff that pretty much my interview was really a lot about, not about the script, but was a lot about the character stuff from the book. And I knew the characters and I knew motivation well enough. And that's what helped me here as well. It was like, okay, um, I had read the script. That was the easy part. I read that in a couple of hours on a Saturday. Um, it was really the book. And honestly, like I said earlier, this is 771 pages of metaphor. You know, there's a lot going on here. And I think that that coupled with my sort of um, ideas about what this boy was going through and how it, you know, sort of manifested itself in being the man. I don't remember having a lot of discussion in the interview about necessarily editing style. I remember him asking a few questions about Breaking Bad. And I guess, you know, with stuff like that, I'll usually talk about, you know, sometimes they'll ask things like, well, do you like to work alone or work with people? And I'm like, look, I, I rather have collaboration. I like that better. You know, a hive mind is better than one. But I'm perfectly able to work on my own and just, you know, whatever way you want to work. I do remember that it was about 45 minutes. And I remember that at the end of it, he was sort of smiling and he was saying, you know, you're great. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry we have to cut this off, but, you know, you're great. And, you know, we'll, 
you know, we'll, we'll, it was good talking to you or something like that. And I remember I was at work, you know, and still had to work, you know, for a couple of more hours. And I remember being done with that interview and just feeling amazing that I had a good meeting. Cause I was just like, this is not going to happen, but I had a great meeting. And honestly, that's kind of the way I look at all my um, meetings is if I had a really good meeting, I felt good about it. Um, on every single one of the other features that I interviewed for, I had a great meeting. So I'm like, okay, you know what? And, and a couple of those jobs I actually did think I had this one. I was like, eh, this is ridiculous. But if I do get it, it was supposed to happen, you know, so because it just doesn't make any sense at all. But, you know, two days later, I was um, I was driving to work and I was taking a canyon road and my agent called me. And whenever your agent calls in the morning, you know, it's serious, at least that for me. <laughs> and and. Oh yeah, if they call in the morning, especially on a, between a Monday or Tuesday, it's like a serious. Um, but uh, I remember driving through the canyon and it rang and I saw who it was and I like immediately pulled over. And he said he got an email from the producer that just she said, "Wow, you really hit it out of the park." Like he did, like in suggesting. <laughs> he's like he's like you really hit it out of the park. We you know, and it was, it was a really, really great feeling. And I mean, I remember when I got the script, I had sort of a friend relationship with the assistant that I ended up hiring. And I said, are you interested at all? He was a, he was a big feature assistant. He had done a lot of features. And I said, are you at all interested in leaving town and working on this? I said, it probably won't happen, but you know, and he's like, yeah, I guess. And so I immediately called him up and I'm like, dude, it happened. Do you want to go to New York? <laughs> He's like, okay, you know, and so um, so I was really glad that they let me bring my own assistant. Uh, his name is Eric Kinch, um, and, uh, you know, he and I, you know, made the journey, and it was great, and we got through it, you know, in one piece, and, you know, and then uh, he ended up hiring a second assistant um, in New York uh, named Michael Fleming. Uh, Michael is a New York assistant, and um, he, um, I'm going to give a plug for him, he just finished being a first assistant on the new Will Smith uh, movie, um, where Mil Will Smith plays himself. I think it's called Gemini Man. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and Eric is, uh, I can't remember the, the show Eric is working on, but I, I, I basically um, told Eric, I said, you need to stop, uh, you need to stop assisting in features. Um, if you want to edit, this is the best time in, in that I've ever seen to become an editor, but you need to get out of assisting in features because it doesn't happen in features, but it happens for assistance in TV. And so I, I sort of counseled him, um, you know, I, I want you to get with an editor who will help you move up. And I also knew that um, that probably wasn't me, unfortunately, because not that I wouldn't, um, but I was trying to move to features. So the chances of him, you know, getting on, of me getting on something where he could actually move up were a little bit less. I've talked to several editors that were very honest. They were saying like, hey, when I was a less experienced editor, I wasn't going to move my assistants up into the, into the spot that I wanted. But now that I'm established and I can help move my assistants 
up to editors. Because- yeah, it's it's true. I mean, this has been this is the easiest time in the world to move up. The plethora of talent that we need now is just crazy, but for you to actually get the opportunity has you know the lottery has never been this good. So, um, but in features, there's less features being done. I mean, look, here's the thing, and this is, uh, again, my opinion, um, but it's just my observation from what I've seen. Uh, there's been a lot of assistants who will cut features on the side. I've seen it. I know plenty of people that have been assistant editors, and, they're, and they've cut a lot of features. The problem is, is that they don't get approached for these features. You know who they approach? Me, you know? And so, and so you know, I find that there's so much, like, resume snobbery, you know, going on, even in TV, but there's so much resume snobbery that it's like, well, they won't give me a feature because I'd never done one, but they won't approach my, you know, an assistant that I know who's done three. Does None of that makes any sense, right? But it's like, that's what they do. And, you know, what I also find too is that, you know, some of these guys, you know, will cut something that will do really, really well at Sundance and, you know, the whatever studio will buy it, but then they want to go back in and who do they call? They, they look at the top of the list, you know, they, and they go, they want to call, you know, my friend Joe Hutching or they want to call Billy Goldenberg or something like that. You know, it's like, you know, you know what I mean? It's, it's kind of nuts, you know, but are you saying for a recut or for their next project? Yeah, for a recut or even for the next project, for gosh sakes. I mean, it happens all the time. You know, a low budget feature will need an editor and they won't pay much and they'll do it what tier one or tier two or whatever the thing is and they won't pay much. But then when it gets successful, they want to, you know, look at the top of the list and get that editor. And it's like, you know, it, I'm not going to say that doesn't make sense, but I will say that that seems to me that that happens a lot with so much work. I mean, people call me a lot and say, do you know any editors, you know, who might be available? And I'm like, I don't know anybody that's available. You know, I mean, seriously, you know, do you know people that are, I mean, everybody I know is busy, everybody, you know? So, so anyway, getting back to the assistant thing, I, I think that, you know, assistance, it's never been a better time for assistance to move up. And like I said, to me, it's, you know, if, if there's a way that they can just get practice, you know, they need it. They, they really do, you know, assistants need practice. And, you know, I've met maybe two who were amazingly excellent, um, you know, starting out amazingly excellent. The other ones, they need practice. You know, I need to practice. When you think of practice for an assistant, you think about giving them a scene, but one of the things that you and I have just spent so much time talking about today is that what the real skill is, is not necessarily the scenes, it's the Uh macro of the story. I give assistants, I say, I always say to them here, along with all your other duties, cut a scene a day. And it doesn't have to be a big scene. Maybe it's just, you know, a scene with two pieces of coverage, but just start getting in the habit of cutting a scene a day. And when you can do that, then start cutting two, you know, and start doing that, you know, cut two scenes a day. And, you know, I've had assistants that are like, oh, you know, that, yeah, that sounds great. And then they save their scenes up till a Saturday and they come in on a Saturday and just cram it all. I'm like, that's not going to uh, accomplish what I'm trying to get you to accomplish. And I'm not going to say that I'm the owner of this. This came from a friend of mine who I, uh, you know, sort of apprenticed under, uh, he was, when he was an assistant and then I assisted for him when he became an editor and his name is Juan Garza. 
And he started saying, you know, cut a scene a day. And, you know, I really didn't get it. I tried to cut a scene a day. Maybe I'd cut, you know, two on one day and none on three days or something like that. But what he really meant and what I really mean by it as well is you have to start like learning how you approach material. And that's by doing homework or basically cutting, you know, doing something every single day. What you're doing is you're building up your chops and you're starting to really really see how you approach material. I will tell you that in my, uh, all my editing, I approach material very differently than I did 10 years ago or, you know, 15 years ago or however my, I've been cutting for 12 years now, I guess. But I approach material very different. I approach material different than I did five years ago. You know, you develop a thought process. And you know what? All the different shows that you do or all the different kinds of dailies that you do starts to make you be um, very flexible in, in how you have to approach it. I remember with Breaking Bad, uh, the average written scene would be about five to six minutes, where on a lot of shows, the average time of a scene would be maybe a minute and a half to two minutes. So it's a very different way of approaching a you know, six-minute scene with dailies, and you might have dailies for like in one scene for like three, four, five hours. You know, I remember the scene that I did, one of my, it was the second show of Breaking Bad that I ever did, and it was the one that had that marathon-long uh, talking pillow. Uh, let's have the, you know, uh, all the family in the living room talking about Walt's treatment with the talking pillow. That scene was nine minutes. Like I'd never approached anything. I didn't even know how to even, you know, like what, I mean, it was, I can't even tell you what my process was in that. And I, I got through it and, um, I, and it ended up being quite good, but I remember just being just, overwhelmed by how to even, you know, and like I said that I had been cutting, you know, for a while, but not a whole show. It was my second, second show. You told me about a better call Saul Sheen where you got nine hours of dailies for the, I did. Where they're, the, yeah. He and uh, Rhea are trying to con somebody out of a bottle of tequila yep. or something. Yeah. And, and actually the first part was nine hours. The, the little, uh, like a little addendum to the scene where they moved to another part of the restaurant was another three. Um, yeah, no, I remember that. Well, you have to have some chops and background to be able to take on a scene of that size. Yeah, exactly. But by then I had a whole different way of approaching things. Do you know what I mean? It was like, um, I knew how to approach a nine hour, you know, scene, but it, when I first started, I didn't, but you know, it's like, I'm trying to get, you know, uh, well, what I was going to say also was that like, when I started working on shameless, it was so crazy. The, the amount of shooting that they did, the amount of cameras that they had every single camera and every single take, even at the same setup was vastly different. Everything was just moving so crazy and so fast that I was like, okay, you know what, I, um, I have to approach these in a very different way. I started to learn how to watch dailies in quad split. Um, I started to not, you know, basically say, okay, my, uh, plan in this is to watch everything, um, that I can and just remember that I've seen something, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, I've seen the camera swing from the refrigerator to the kitchen table, which side of the room was a camera on that 
that's where I can basically tell you where in this plethora of dailies that is. But you know what I mean? It was one of those things where there was no way to sit there and watch every single frame, you know, by itself and digest it the way that I had, you know, learned how to do. Um, I had to come up with a whole new way. There's so many editors out here now. Everybody can match. It's not about that. It's not about, it's about what is your approach to the material. You know, one of the things that I work with, with um, one of the assistants that I work with now is, you know, he started cutting a couple things for me when I was on Castle Rock. And the first question that I would ask him is I said, okay, in this scene that you're going to present me, what has just happened and what is going to happen? And at first he couldn't answer those questions. And I said, okay, I need you to, te- to be able to come in and tell me, you know, here's what happened. And it's not that I'm trying to like quiz you on it. I just need you to know because you need to know when you're approaching this stuff. You know what I mean? What has just happened? Get yourselves in, get yourself into the into the way these characters think, or into the way this story is being revealed to us. Um, one of the things that I started really, really looking at, especially on the Goldfinch, and I think that it helped me a lot, was I started really, really looking at audience perspective and manipulation and how I, as an editor, would approach the audience perspective and also the character's perspective and where in that sort of triad, if there was two characters, in that sort of triad we were at any given time and how it needed to change and how I was at the helm of making that change. For instance, if you have a scene with two characters is the audience connected to one character and experiencing the scene from that character's point of view? Or is the audience objective? Are they more in an objective, just watching it like a tennis match? Which is perfectly fine, but also then at what point does the audience then reconnect with a character and experience it? You know, there's a lot of ways. And that really, really gets into the weeds. And I've like had these discussions with writers and sometimes they can't even keep up with that. It's like when you're reading the script or reading like a book or something like that, you know, where is your perspective and where do you want it to be? That was another discussion. These like we would get into very, very, very complex discussions, John and I. I mean, one of our discussions was um, you know, there's a big reveal in the film. It's like, okay, when I got the scene, it was like, okay, th- there is a very, very specific job that I have here as an editor because not only am I in charge of under, I mean, in charge of basically revealing to the main character, but I'm in charge of revealing to us as an audience. That's two different entities at this point. And what is it going to do to us as an audience, you know, as we, you know, keep going further and further along in the plot of this story? What is the motivation of the scene? And how do we manage all the different entities that we need to? And if we are managing it, are we getting what we need to out of it? You know, are we connected to the character? Are we experiencing what we need to experience as an audience? Are we in the right place as an audience with the right character at the right time? And if we are, great. If we aren't, how do we get there? That's like crazy weed work. (laughs) But it's, I will tell you this, I wasn't thinking about these things three years ago. You know what I mean? That, that's kind of how, um, you know, for me, things have evolved. Um, but I also like to, 
talk to, especially with assistants when I'm looking at their work, it's like, okay, um, what are you trying to get at here? And it's like, look, everybody can tell an objective story. It's pretty easy. It's, you know, stuff that you watch. But I always used to say with Breaking Bad, um, I say it's way more interesting to be with Walt and Jesse as they did stuff, you know, and not just watching them do stuff. That's not that interesting. It's like you want to be with them. You want to understand, you know, uh, the situation, the way they understand it. You want to be revealed when they're revealed. I mean, going back way, 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 way back um, to my first ever Breaking Bad episode, it was the one where uh, Walt is uh, talking to uh, Crazy Eight in the basement, um, and he realizes that Crazy Eight, you know, is going to kill him if he lets him go, and he goes back up. Yeah, well, he's yeah, he's he he's got a bike lock around his neck. Um, <laughs> the twist, the twisted mind of Vince Gilligan. Yeah, and. Um, and uh, and he goes back upstairs. And I remember when I read the script, I was so enthralled with the script because when I read the pilot, I was like thinking, oh, this is just a madcap adventure and who knows where it will go. And when I read that script, I'm like, oh, shit. I had no idea that it was going to even go close to this kind of darkness. And boy, did it. But when I read the script for that scene, I remember that was the only scene that scared me because I realized that there was not the scene where, um, he's talking to crazy eight, but the next scene where he comes up into the kitchen and he starts to look at the pieces of broken plate and realizes that one piece is missing in its shape like a dagger. And I was just like scared of that because I was like, there is no help that dialogue is going to give me. It's only, me. I'm the one that's going to set the suspense, the reveal. We can't be revealed as an audience too quickly. We can't be, we, Walt has got to tell us, but we have to be close behind him. You know what I mean? We can't know before he knows. And I just knew, oh my God, this scares me so much. You know, am I going to be able to pull this off? And when I got the scene, it was like, it was pretty easy and I thought that I had nailed it and I don't think there's any changes in it from the editor's cut. I, I was really, really excited about that. But I will tell you this, I was not able to put that into words back then. I mean, I sort of understood what my job was, but you know, now I'm able to put much more into words. I also realized um, a couple of years ago, I cut a pilot and I was working with an assistant um, that was, you know, uh, sort of trying to, uh, you know, work in pilots to get moved up. So he was sort of ready to be moved up, but he needed practice as well. And I remember uh, watching some scenes that he had cut, and I remember at that point being able to verbalize why things needed to go in a certain direction or why, um, characters, you know, I, I was able to verbalize what it wasn't just about feel. It was more about how can I explain to him why we need to cut this a certain way? Um, we were having trouble with a character. We need, we, people were not connected to that character. And this was the main character. Uh, this character wasn't as vibrant that he needed, you know, as he needed to be, um, 
Uh, and I was like, okay. Um, I explained to this, the assistant, I said, I know this sounds nuts, but I want you to keep this character as close to us as possible in the screen. Meaning that, yes, I understand that you need to go behind his back or something like that, but be with him as much as possible, you know, be, and it's hard to explain without showing you the footage, but be with the character make him close to us even in proximity on the screen as much as possible because we're going to need to use every trick in the book to make sure our audience is very, very, very on point with this character. But I just thought at that point I was like going, oh my God, now I've sort of learned how to verbalize, you know, what is sort of happening in my head. And not only does it help my assistant, but it helps me. Because, you know, if I can like speak about it, then it's going to make it easier later for me. And I think what it does too is it's not about helping you if there are no problems. It's about identifying problems. You've got to like recognize a problem before you can solve it. Especially when you have problems in editorial, what I find is if you're able to talk about them and verbalize them, then they're much more, much more able to figure out the problem and and solve it rather than kind of like throw things at spaghetti against a wall, you know, in the beginning of the movie, like I told you when I was talking to John early about, well, John, you've set up a mystery that you're not letting the audience in on until much later. And so our normal, um, uh, attitude toward that is, Ooh, you know, you're telling us something happened. What happened? And so we're thinking, is there something? Is there a clue? What happened? What happened? What happened? Instead of moving on from that point and understanding what the kind of life this kid has and how it's going to shape him later, we want to know, but wait, what happened? You know, what happened? And, um, and it was one of those things where what we ended up doing um, a lot of was uh, working with um, the inner sort of voiceover and storytelling that is told by the main character in that Amsterdam hotel room. Uh, that changed quite a bit. And we we gave uh, him, uh, you know, sort of a different conceptual um, dialogue uh, to help us as an audience so we could easily, not easily, but we could move on from that mystery. It's like, okay, we're going to tell you that there was a mystery and we're going to tell you um, what the character is feeling, but we're not going to reveal the mystery, but you're going to know enough to know. Like, you know, one of the things he says is, you know, he says, um, you know, my mother died when I was a kid and I felt like it was my fault. You know, that was not originally what was scripted. And, um, and what we felt was, um, we needed sort of almost like a thesis statement. So it's like, you could understand, okay, something happened. We don't need to be as concerned about it yet. We will tell you later, you know, but understand that this boy is going through, you know, a horrible, um, tragic event that he experienced. And now he's an adult and he can't stop thinking about it. Uh, Kelly, I've taken a lot of your time. I really appreciate a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for asking. Have a nice afternoon. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Kelly Dixon, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, please give us a like, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.